The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime. Hello and welcome to The Week in Art. I'm Ben Luke. This week, the Art Basel Fair has just opened in Switzerland. So, are collectors back and are they buying? As well as talking to Jane Morris, an editor-at-large at the art newspaper about Art Basel, I talked to the classicist Mary Beard about her new book, Twelve Caesars, looking at representations of power across 2,000 years of art history. And in this episode's Work of the Week, we focus on Christo and Jean-Claude's L'Arc de Triomphe Wrapped, the last ever wrapping project by the late duo. I talked to Vladimir Yavachev, Christo's nephew, who's overseen the final stages of the project in Paris. Before all that, our sister podcast, A Brush With, is back for a new series of four episodes with in-depth artist interviews. The latest episode is A Brush With, Tacita Dean. So subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to hear that and to explore the archive of more than 25 conversations. Now, after being cancelled last year and postponed earlier this year, the Art Basel Fair finally opened in Basel this week. Galleries have been nervous about a dearth of collectors after the US issued a do-not-travel advisory for Switzerland at the end of August, prompting Art Basel to send a letter of reassurance and concessions to its exhibitors, pledging to foot the bill for any hotel quarantine and to create a solidarity relief fund apportioned out to any galleries disappointed with their sales at the fair. So, what's it like in Basel now the fair's open? Jane Morris, an editor-at-large for the art newspaper, has been at the fair all week and I spoke to her about her impressions. Jane, there are a lot of jitters ahead of the fair because of this advice from the US government about travelling to Switzerland. Were the jitters founded or unfounded? So there were obviously a lot of jitters before the fair started. Because of the US travel advisory, people didn't expect the Americans to come, by and large. Um, and they didn't really expect many visitors from Asia. Obviously, the America is still the largest section of the art market. It's probably, what, 45, 50% uh, of, of the market. Um, and Asia, as we know, is growing rapidly. Now, it has turned out that it was true. There are very few Americans here. There are some. Opinions vary on, on who and why, but there are some. Um, and I'm sure there will be the odd Asian collector here, but, but in general, there are very, very few Americans here and very, very few Asians. Nevertheless, it does look like the European collectors have turned out in force. It inevitably feels a lot quieter. 11am on the first day, I stood outside the Messerplatz, then I went into the central area. Well, in fact, it was a little bit earlier because they allowed people to flow into the central area and it felt quiet. Within an hour or two, um, again, it felt quieter, but there were a lot of conversations happening on both floors. And several dealers said to me that although they were nervous about those first um, couple of hours, actually things started to improve very quickly. And I think it would be fair to say that the European collectors have enjoyed, certainly the ones I've spoken to, have enjoyed the fact that it's nothing like as crowded you know, the Americans often rush in and start making deals really quickly. I mean, these are gross simplifications, but, but this is what tends to happen. The Europeans have had longer, they've had more conversations, it's been slower, but there's no doubt that a lot of sales have happened. Can you tell me about some of those sales? Have, have the galleries been giving you details of what, about what they've sold? Um, yes, I mean, there's actually quite long lists of reported sales coming out now. There's been quite a lot of reporting about this Basquiat that's on Van de Vega. As far as I'm aware, that's not yet sold. It's priced at reportedly 40 million. And it's a really good one. It's a 1983. It's called Hardware Store. It's like two coloured boards, yellow and blue, and the words estimated value written on it. Obviously, it's been very widely photographed. There's been a lot of talk about it. As far as we know, not yet sold. But lots of other things in the million plus mark have gone. Um, a couple of the highlights was a beautiful Philip Guston uh, on Hauser and Wirth, the poet from 1975. That sold for six and a half million dollars. A large Robert Rauschenberg um, that's being shown in Art Unlimited by uh, Tadeus Ropak uh, called Rolling Salvage. That has sold for four and a half million dollars. And as I said, there's been a, several of those large, you know, three, four, five million dollar sales reported. 
Obviously, the vast majority of sales are probably more in the kind of, you know, low end $40,000 up to half a million. But there's been lots and lots of them reported. I should say this sort of reporting is always quite skewed, though. There are 250 galleries here. Everybody goes and talks to the big ones first. So everybody talks to Hauser and White Cube, uh, Pace, Werner. And then they probably go and talk to the galleries with artists that they like. So inevitably, we skew our reporting. Um, it is quite probable that there are smaller and mid-level galleries who haven't yet sold anything. Having said that, the galleries I spoke to generally seemed very, very happy um, I spoke to Alison Jack and she'd done very well. She, she specialises in women artists, sometimes more historic, also some younger ones. She'd done very well. Mendes Wood, which has got a very large selection, often of Brazilian artists, amongst others, they've done very well. So, so I mean, generally, people seem to have done well. You've been to several Basel fairs before. One of the things that's always said about Basel is that the galleries wait to sell their best fair works of the year at Basel. It's the fair that everybody loves the most. It's the one that they save their best works for. Do you think that's the, the case this time? Or because of the sort of skewed nature of the market at the moment, it, it feels different? Well, I always slightly wonder what people mean when they say the best works. Um, I, so, so let's uh, perhaps clarify. I would say that generally people bring the best work by the artists they have chosen to show. But most galleries, the big ones represent, you know, up to, they could be as many as 80 artists. And at one end, they'll have kind of whoever they think is a hot young, you know, thing. <laughs> uh, and at the other end, they could be, we could be talking about an artist estate of an artist who is absolutely firmly established in the canon. So yes, I think generally people don't bring B and C list works by the artists they represent. But there's a big choice about which artists to bring. I mean, obviously, there's one, one of the things I wondered was whether if, if you've got a reduced collector base at the fair, would that necessarily mean that people were more conservative in what they did bring because then they would be more guaranteed to sell? Yes, absolutely. I think for me, Art Unlimited was the first, let's say, not the only one, but was the bellwether of that because it opens first. It opens on the Monday evening before the main fair opens the following day. Art Unlimited, sure, most of the listeners know, but just in case you don't, it's a, almost like a warehouse space. And it's used for very large scale works. So it could be very big sculpture, very large paintings. It often has a lot of video. And it's a bit more like going to a Biennale or something. Art Basel says it's curated, but it's not curated in the way a Biennale is curated. Um, so there aren't themes running through it. It does depend what the dealers have decided to bring. But it can vary from some very, very exciting sort of out there <laughs> uh, installations. Uh, you could even have very long video it just gives a flavor of what people feel you know is likely to sell and I think the thing that was very noticeable some years it's very risk-taking some years it is full of very large installations that might have a lot of digital elements incorporated um, you could have big videos long videos difficult videos and people are really showing them to kind of show off their program this time, I thought it actually looks really good because it has got a surprisingly large amount of minimal or older artists, established masters who look very good in this kind of space. So there is a huge Dan Flavin, pink Dan Flavin from 1974. In the middle, there's a John Chamberlain. It's not one of the crushed cars. It's like this huge sort of tinfoil structure. And it's, you know, it looks absolutely great in there. There's a pink sort of set of pink minimal canvases by Ettore Spalletti. But I just kept thinking, gosh, there's a lot of classic Americans here. There's a lot of mid-century Italians here. There's a really um, fantastic installation of works by Sherry Levine. Um, you know, she re-photographs other artists. And this one is called mm -hmm. um, After Russell Lee. Now, it's actually quite a, it, it's a more recent work. But, you know, when I think of Sherry Levine... I think of the 70s, <laughs> you know, early 80s. Yeah, exactly. So there's, that runs throughout uh, Unlimited. A few people have been a little bit more, you know, experimental. So there's a Lawrence Abu Hamdan uh, sound installation installed. But by and large, I'm not saying it looks like deer. That would be 
aggrandizing Art Unlimited, but it definitely has an odor dear, if you know what I mean. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I mean, it's it's really curious, isn't it? Because I mean, of course, the fact that this is happening is quite a landmark moment because we've, you know, the the major fairs we've had, we've also had the Armoury, just had the Armoury in New York, for instance. But you know, so many major fair postponements. It's been the sort of crisis area of the market, really. Does it feel to you like there's a there's a sort of general sense in which this is getting back to normal? Or does it feel more like there's still the sort of jitteriness, there's still the sense that we're not sure what's coming next? Are people like, this is the first step towards normality? I would say this is the first step towards uh, normality, actually. I think what I was struck by was People were very, very happy to be back in the fair. There was a bit of a sense, I think a number of people have said it, of a back-to-school reunion. And because there wasn't so many of us there, uh, it was much easier to see people you know, your friends you know. It was also easier to talk to people you didn't know. So I found that I could go up and talk to galleries that I didn't know at all. And people were very friendly, very happy to speak. Uh, And then you'd bump into somebody you haven't seen for the best part of two years. So I think people were very happy to be back together again. I think people were very happy to see art in the real again. A number of curators, there were a lot of curators here. Again, people talked about the fact that a lot of the big American curators weren't here and they missed them. You know, obviously a lot of the big patrons groups, again, the same. But the curators who were here said just how nice it was to see art again, even though these are the people who don't tend to love art fairs. So no, I mean, I think people were definitely happy to be back. Of course, people have used digital a lot, but I do think there's a question about how much people are largely using digital as marketing and communications rather than really a sales tool. I know there's this question about young Asian buyers. There's also a lot of discussion about, I think, speculation over there, where the art is being used much more like an investment buy. But I would say that certainly the European collectors and curators I talk to were happy to be back at a fair, actually. I don't think they love endlessly scrolling through OVRs. And as a side point, I would also note that actually only 40%, roughly, of the galleries here have actually done the Art Basel OVR this time. Ah, that's interesting. Yeah. Because we were, we were told, in a way, the headlines were all about how OVRs are kind of you know, now a central part of that package and eventually would sort of have a parity with the sort of in-person sales. But you think that that's not certain? I think that, oh, this is such a difficult one because, you know, if you if you sort of raise questions about digital, everyone immediately thinks you're a dinosaur. Um, <laughs> and And I think that's not true. I think, obviously, people are happy to buy and sell things online. But I think we should also be clear, very few art sales are true digital sales, by which I mean you saw it online, you paid for it online, you shipped it and everything online, and you didn't literally see the thing until it landed on your door, because the gallery always wants to intervene in that process. So most of the sales processes are encouraging you to then speak to a gallery director who then you sit with on Zoom, no doubt, and then they show you the work. Yeah, arguably, it's still sort of digital, but I don't think it's digital in the way the retail world recognises a true digital sale. I also think, as is often discussed, it's much easier if you know the artist's work really well. And I think if you're very familiar with an artist's work, I don't think you'd have any problem buying something online. And as I say, if you're a new buyer who's essentially buying in a more speculative way, you know, you want to buy a hot artist, you want to flip it around, get it into auction, I don't know, six, eight months later, then I can also see that's fine because you don't really care what the work looks like because you're not actually intending to keep it. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not saying that there will not be large amounts of digital sales. I'm just saying I think the jury is a bit out. I think art is such an expensive object. Even cheap art is really expensive. (laughs) And the number of people who can buy it are really very few. And I do wonder how many people actually collect because they really like coming to fairs and like going to galleries and like meeting the artists and like hanging out with the dealers. I mean, a lot of them say that that's what they like. Now, again, I'm not speaking to 25-year-olds. So, no, I'm not ruling it out. But I do think the fact that a substantial majority of the galleries at Art Basel didn't choose to use the Art Basel OVR 
says something. <laughs> Not quite sure what yet. I haven't spoken to enough people. No, it's, it's a really interesting development. I wondered if like having a sparse affair, having fewer collectors gave you more insight into how much selling was done in advance of the fair because of course the fair is the theater it's the it's this grand moment mm. and it you know it, it's it's meant to be buzzy and all those kind of things but we do know that lots of sales happen before fairs loads of stuff is set up in advance has this fair given you any more perspective about just how much of that's happened oh i'm sure people did a lot of work before the art fair but i think we've only just got to put ourselves into the shoes of a gallery here you know you're spending an awful lot of money to come here Everyone will have been worried. I think like we were all worried. What happens if you get coronavirus while you're here and you end up having to stay in Switzerland at great expense and goodness knows where because all the hotels are full for 10 days or whatever the rules are. But just those sort of practical things aside, just imagine any fair. Would you turn up with a stand having spent all this money and just kind of hope that people are going to turn up? Of course you wouldn't. I think you would, of course, do an awful lot of preparation. And of course, preparation means contacting all your collector base, sending them work that you think will interest them, probably talking to them in advance, encouraging them to come, encouraging them to buy. Yes, I'm sure quite a lot of things were sold, really, in quotes, before they got here. But you do always need some reason to make people part with their money. Again, you know, sorry to be so basic, but if you don't need another coat and there's a coat in a shop and you know it's going to be there for the next two years, what's the motivation to go and buy it? And I think a lot of people felt that art fairs provide that kind of moment where you've got a chance to say to the people, you know, make your decision now or somebody else is going to buy it. And again, if you think about the digital space and you think about what, say, galleries like Gagosian did in the lockdown with those 48-hour sales, they were absolutely quite clearly trying to create an event with a fixed moment where somebody has to say, actually, I need to buy this now. Because otherwise, I mean, it's human nature. A lot of us would sit and think about it for quite a long time and might even think about it so long that we've gone off the coat or the picture we were, you know? (laughs) So what about the makeup of galleries at the fair? Does it look much as it has done in the past? Overall, I would say that the the gallery list does look pretty similar, um, the core gallery list. The vast majority of galleries who come to Basel will want to come to Basel. I don't think you can see Basel as a bellwether of fairs in general. Um, It's reached a particular level. I think in the modern contemporary world, it is unarguably the leading fair. The, The Basel fair is the leading fair. So if you're going to come to any art fair you're going to come to this one, even in a coronavirus year, because you will at the very least get access to all these very top European collectors. And as I say, I heard rumours that some really big Americans had come in, probably on private jets. So, you know, some very big collectors came and the galleries are going to want to come and see them. So the core list, I think, does look pretty similar. I mean, there was a moment when I turned a corner and saw some works by Michael Rakovitz and I thought it wasn't the same works but I really did have a sense of deja vu I was like I'm I'm sure I saw something very similar here two years ago having said that I mean like all fairs Basel has sections that are very specifically designed to encourage new galleries to apply so one of my very local galleries um, Emmeline which has gone the sort of east end Bethnal Green Shoreditch area uh, is here for the first time in the statement section. Um, And then there's features, there's another section where it's often galleries that would normally show, but they show a special presentation or it's a new gallery with a special presentation. So, of course, like all fairs, Basel does want to bring in some new, fresh faces. However, the biggest sense of deja vu was on the the, the first floor, which is the, the, the more contemporary floor. And I turn around and I see... Jeffrey Deitch. And he's got that same space that he always had, the one with the stairs going up. And he's actually put work on all, I say three floors, the top one is very tiny, but up, you know, up this staircase. And I looked at him and I thought, I'm sure Deitch hasn't been here for years, but maybe not as many years as I think. So anyway, I went to speak to him and he's actually come back for the first time in 12 years to occupy his old space. So that was a kind of you know, old, new presentation. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, does that tell us anything? I mean, it, it, is that just a sort of anomalous presence at the fair? Is, he's, he's always been a maverick and he's being maverick. I think, I think Deitch is a maverick being maverick. <laughs> okay. 
but I suspect he quite likes the fun of the fair, I have to say. And I think that quite a lot of people here have found themselves enjoying fairs again. I don't think we will see people doing anything like as many fairs if they don't have to. I'm talking about galleries now. I'm not sure whether collectors are going to do as many fairs, but I think these super top level affairs, Basel being the prime example, sure, they don't want it to be like this every year, but I definitely think they will be happy with how this year went. Now, we've heard about COVID protocols, which seem a bit stricter than elsewhere in Europe. So, for instance, if you have the AstraZeneca vaccine that you may not have been able to get into the fair, what was the reality when you got there? Well, the rules, in fact, changed on the Monday. So if you flew in on Sunday, I think many of the rules were still in place, which is that you were going to have to have uh, COVID tests every 48 hours. Um, In fact, I arrived on the Monday and found that because of that rule change, it was actually very straightforward. So I was very pleasantly surprised. I was pleasantly surprised at the airport, although I've still got the return journey to make. I was pleasantly surprised at the airport. I was pleasantly surprised here. I think most people have felt, you know, once you've got your wristband, um, it does make things much easier. It makes things easier round and about Basel. I think the fair genuinely have tried as hard as they can. The rules were coming from the Swiss government around large scale events. But as I say, those rules have changed. Having said that, as far as I'm aware, there's still a number of vaccines that are less common in Europe um, that are not recognised. And that's what's caused a lot of the the problems. We, We had the travel advisory from the Americans, but equally, a lot of people, I think, in other places have been vaccinated with vaccines that aren't recognised. And I think that's really caused a lot of the difficulties this year. Well, Jane, thank you so much for telling us about it. Thank you. It's really great to be here. You can read all the latest Art Basel reporting at theartnewspaper.com or on our app for iOS and Android, which is available from the App Store or Google Play. Coming up, I speak to Mary Beard about her new book and we look at Christo and Jean-Claude's final fabric wrapping of a building in Paris. But first, here are a few of the top stories on our website this week. London's National Gallery has just acquired a painting which once formed part of Hitler's Führer Museum. As Martin Bailey reports, the Swiss artist Alexandra Kalam's chalet at Rigi from 1861 may have once been owned by a Jewish victim of the Holocaust before being looted for Hitler's collection. It was recovered by American troops in 1945 and passed into public ownership before, in 1985, the Austrian authorities decided that unclaimed artworks that may have been owned by Jewish people should be sold at auction, with the proceeds going to benefit victims of the Holocaust. It was bought at Christie's in 1996 by Asbjorn Lunder, a New York lawyer with Norwegian parents. He bequeathed it through the American Friends of the National Gallery, where it went on display this week. The long-awaited Guggenheim Abu Dhabi will open in five years' time, said the institution's director Richard Armstrong at a press briefing in Basel on Tuesday. The museum, an outpost of the Solomon R. Guggenheim Foundation, was first announced in 2006. Designed by Frank Geary, it would be the Guggenheim's biggest space, at around 320,000 square feet. It was initially due to open in 2012 and then in 2017. First Sight in Colchester has won the Art Fund Museum of the Year 2021 award. The £100,000 prize is the largest of its kind and was awarded to the museum in Essex, South East England for being an outstanding example of innovation and integrity, according to Jenny Waldman, the Art Fund director and chair of the judging panel. The small museum won the award in part for its work during the pandemic, including hosting a food bank, creating free activity packs with renowned artists during lockdown and running the Great Big Art Exhibition, which encouraged the public to make works of art and stick them in their windows. The other shortlisted museums were the Centre for Contemporary Art Derry Londonderry, Experience Barnsley, the Thackeray Museum of Medicine in Leeds and Timespan in Helmsdale. You can read all these stories and much more on the website or the app. We'll be back after this. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. On the 30th of September, Christie's will offer objects from a unique collection of 19th century fine and decorative arts in An Aesthetic Odyssey, the Peter Rose and Albert Gallican collection. 
Comprising 300 lots of British decorative arts and paintings, the auction's led by The Light of the World, a contemporary studio version of the William Holman Hunt masterpiece that was, in its own time, recognised as one of the most famous paintings in the world. Proceeds from the sale will go to benefit the Albert Dawson Educational Trust. Established in 2003, the Trust promotes and supports the study of 19th century British fine and decorative arts. Find out more on christies.com. Welcome back. Now, Mary Beard, the broadcaster and professor of classics at the University of Cambridge, has a new book out next week. Twelve Caesars, Images of Power from the Ancient World to the Modern, studies how images of Roman autocrats, and particularly the Twelve Caesars, beginning with Julius Caesar in 48 BCE and ending with Domitian in 96 CE, have influenced the representation of power for more than 2,000 years, from great paintings by Hans Memling and Titian to cartoons in contemporary newspapers. I spoke to Mary about the book. Mary, I wanted to begin by asking you, is this a classics book or an art history book? I think it's both. It's a, a classicist looks at art history and hopes that classics has got something to offer art history. Uh, I say that quite modestly because, um, you know, I'm, I'm not, as you know, Ben, I'm not an expert, you know, in Titian or in Renaissance tapestry. Um but I think sometimes it's worth just crossing the line a bit and seeing if, if you dig around from your own perspective, you can offer something in due modesty to the other subject. <laughs> <laughs> and it's uh, one of the things you know, reading it is, is the scope of the book. When you talk about the modern period, it really is an expansive view of that modern period looking back at, looking back at the ancient world, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, it's anything from... 14th century onwards, really. All of that's modern to me. <laughs> There's a nice quote at the start of the book. I'm going to quote it back at you near, near the start of the book, which says that, that there are st- that basically it's a book of discovery, misidentification, hope, disappointment, controversy, interpretation, and reinterpretation. And that's that. Very, that's super clear, actually. <laughs> I found reading it. Tell tell us about that. What do you mean well, by that? Uh, it. I mean, I think what struck me as I work more on what I call modern images of Roman emperors was you know, actually how fluid the whole story of that is. I mean, it starts fluid because no one can quite be sure in most cases what ancient statue is a statue of which emperor or if it's an emperor at all. So there is a kind of messy fluidity at the very beginning. But then, you know, decade by decade, century by century, people have re-identified those ancient statues they've copied them they've messed them up they've misidentified them they've lost them they've decided they didn't like Caligula so they'd have a Trajan instead they put the wrong labels on the bottom they haven't read the Latin or um, uh, uh, you know and so forth and you know I think one has to be a bit careful here because you know we all make mistakes and so it's you know I, I, I don't want the book to seem as if it's a kind of classicist coming along wagging her finger and saying tut tut you you didn't see this was Tiberius um part of the pleasure of these emperors only part is that they have got everywhere and they've been re-identified and they've they've been reconstructed differently and then um then somebody decided it wasn't Julius Caesar anyway etc etc so it's good fun. It's kind of there's a there's a bit of a detective story I think built in this. That very much comes across, and that chapter on Julius Caesar is very instructive, isn't it? Because I hadn't realised until I read it that you know basically our the the our idea of Julius Caesar is founded on a series of misidentified busts. Yes. <laughs> no, and in some ways, I think this is this is good fun. You know, I think it's liberating to discover that. Um, but I. I think that sometimes archaeologists just give such an impression of you know, certainty and they've got things straight and sorted that they mislead people, including me, you know, into thinking that somehow we know who's who. And you know, I, I once asked my students, why was it so difficult to, you know, to actually identify busts of Julius Caesar? And they got all terribly learned. You know, it took them ages to get to the point that there aren't any which are labelled, you know, not, there isn't one that has come down with his name on, apart from coin portrait. 
But of course, each age reinvents him. And that's another key point, isn't it? Yes, that's right. I mean, and so you get people both reinventing him and finding amongst the supposedly bona fide ancient versions, though some of those are probably 18th or 19th century, um, even when they look bona fide, you find that each age kind of goes after a different one that finds the image. This is the authentic image of Caesar. This is the authentic image of Caesar done from the life during his lifetime, um, etc., etc. And then that somehow holds the field. It gets replicated. You know, modern artists look to it and think, that's going to be my base. And then some some other statue comes along with you know, somebody else speaking out for it. And everything changes. The previous favourite ends up being put in the store, you know, 19th century fake. Uh, and there's a new one um, all ready to, to um, hold the stage for 50 years or so. <laughs> and yet there's that... that, that... Something which which occurred to me when when I read it was absolutely spot on, which was that of course we all sort of agree what Julius Caesar looked like. Yeah, you know, and so I think you know there's this in part there's this fluidity, but then the combination of his portraits on coins, the copies and the versions, both ancient and modern, and quite different in some respects, but um, they kind of converge onto Kenneth Williams in, you know, in Carry On Cleo, um, you know, slightly gaunt face. Um, <laughs> I mean, he's, he's spot on. Um, and, you know, and the question is, you know, if you kind of pushed me and said, do you think Julius Caesar really looked anything like that? Well, probably he did a bit. <laughs> but it's nothing like I think we're dealing with a phenomenon here that's nothing like our kind of cult of the modern portrait where you know in many ways we're supposed to um see the person we're supposed to even if it is not lifelike um there is supposed to be a, a kind of essence or something about the person that's recaptured I mean what's recaptured in these and I think it's just as important honestly is their political role you know, it's what they stand for is is recaptured. So it's, you know, it's not a kind of romantic communing with the very being of Caesar. It's Julius Caesar, dictator of Rome. That's right. And um, you mentioned coins there. And of course, there's a very nice, you know, uh, a chapter again about coins and, 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 and not just about the coins themselves, but about the way that they are represented. And you reproduce that wonderful Hans Memling painting, for instance. Tell us about the Memling and, and, and what did that tell us about the, the significance well, of the coins? I think what's very interesting about that, that Memling is that the figure, whoever he is, is holding up. The thing you notice is that he's holding up to the viewer of the portrait a coin of Nero. And there have been all kinds of puzzles about this. You know, why is this presumably honorific portrait in some sense? Why is this guy displaying a coin of, you know, one of the ancient world's renowned monsters? And there have been lots of, you know, ingenious, good uh, attempts to explain that, you know, that it's a pun on his name or it was a coin he owned or whatever. We really don't know. But I think that what it sparked me off to see and I'm certainly not the first person to have seen this you know I'm a bit late to the party here is that before let's say 16th 17th century the image of the Roman emperor the image of Romans really was fixed not by marble sculpture it was fixed by little coins and the the cult of the coin in the renaissance Part of it was quite nicely democratising because not many people can own marble busts of emperors, but lots of people can own coins of emperors. But there was a kind of way of seeing coins that we've just lost. You know, okay, some of it might be hyperbole, but you know, these guys getting a portrait of Augustus on on his coins, they're saying, "I am seeing the real person here." They are enthusing about the coin and about their direct contact. You know, this is not like reading Suetonius, who might have given you all kinds of um, biased version of what Augustus looks like. Look at this coin 
and you're looking at something Augustus himself sponsored. And I think that those numismatists who've said, look, you know, to go and give a slightly spurious technical term, the image of the, the Roman emperors or the, the study of Roman emperors, you know, the 15th century, 14th century was nomocentric, focused on coins. And we can't understand that because we are marmorocentric. Uh, and you know we find it very difficult to thrill to a coin. You know we just you know we find it quite difficult. I think to thrill to a marble bust. We find it even more difficult to thrill to a coin. But that was where you got your first view and your most authentic view of the emperor. And you know that is you know in the case of something like Caesar, that is has been used all the time as the kind of the key to unlock the sculptures. How far does the sculpture look like the coin? <laughs> That's fascinating. I mean, and one of the lovely threads through the book is is this idea that every age has a defining view of the classical world, which is it's very much its own interpretation. And and so, for instance, the eighteenth century is littered with references to classical bodies in a way that the Renaissance period responded to different elements of the classical world, right? Yeah, and the, in, in the 19th century. I mean, I think you, what you find is different emphases. I think all these, there, there's continuity in a way between all these threads through the period, of the different periods, but the emphasis shifts very strikingly. So, I mean, you know, by the time you get to the 19th century, you know, okay, there have been very nasty pictures of Nero inspecting the body of his dead mother, whom he's killed, um, you know, for centuries, but it becomes the focus of attention. How can you use this image to think about the paradoxes of monarchy and the corruption of power uh, and, and so forth? And so you see the same memes, in a way, let's call them memes, uh, being repeated but re-emphasised and reinterpreted throughout the period. You talked about Titian earlier on. Titian Caesars are really fascinating, but partly because we don't, we have no means of accessing just how utterly so how one how widely circulated they were how important they were perceived to be how, how they represented Titian to so many people of the past tell us about those seasons. yeah well they also they represented Roman emperors in a way that now seems in, incomprehensible to us you know that that would have been the vision and the the, the Caesars um commissioned by Federico Gonzaga for his Camerino de Cesare at, at Mantua um, in the beginning of the, the 16th century. And they have a very checkered history. <laughs> they, um, they don't survive. They get, they're part of Charles I's hall uh, of his Mantua pieces coming to, to London. Uh, then at the fall of Charles I, politely put, uh, they end up going to Madrid. And in the 18th century, they're destroyed in the Great Alcazar fire. And they've been a focus of attention and puzzlement and kind of detective story ever after. One of the puzzlements is that um, there's only 11 of them. You know, everybody thinks, how many, what do Caesars come in? Well, they come in dozens, don't they? There are 12 Caesars. Uh, and Titian Caesars, as we can tell from uh, descriptions and from some copies that we have, um, didn't include Domitian. And so there's been a lot of puzzlement and still unanswered puzzlement uh, about why he only did 11. I, I think my, my kind of my, my favourite bad explanation um, is that Titian was was working in a small room uh, and uh, with Giulio Romano, who was you know, in, in control of the overall design and um, they couldn't fit 12 in. That's right. Yeah, I, Two of the great visual minds of their that, age somehow managed to mismeasure yeah, a, 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 a room. You know, they, oh, damn it. You know, what are we going to do now? Or let's just have, we'll just, you know, I just have to have 11. Uh, and, but it remains that kind of wonderful sense that you have the incomplete series. You know, we, you know, ever since the, 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 the rediscovery and the refashionability of Suetonius, you know, Caesar's came in 12. And Titian kind of offers us this, um, version of a sequence which hasn't quite finished. You know, it, I think it's you know, it's partly a nod to dynastic continuity. You know, these, this is not a bounded series. This doesn't 
quite end. But I mean, I think for hardcore Titian scholars, it's you know, it's been hugely frustrating in a way because you know what what was looked upon as you know, in a sense, you know, one of the central uh, sets of Titian's masterpieces have just are gone, um, and what you're left with is copies of all kinds of different genealogy um, without the original, whether that's in print, uh, whether we, you know, everybody comes along and they add the 12th Caesar, of course, because who the hell wants just 11 Caesars? Um, they get copied and replicated all over Europe. As I say, certainly the originals were burnt in the Alcazar fire, but that didn't stop people thinking they hadn't been burnt really. And you get a wonderful, you know, um, Abraham Darby the Fourth thinks that he's got some of Titian's real ones, and other people think they they managed to get to America. So you have this sort of Loch Ness monster style version of what happened to the Titians, uh, but they're also, as I say, they're copied in in paint, but they're most famously, I suppose, they're copied in print. And um, Agidius. Sadler, you know, around the turn of the 16th, 17th century, does a series of, of prints which uh, also add in a Domitian, but become the face of the Titians. And then, then from the prints, they get onto teacups, into wax, I mean, in, remade back into sculpture uh, until... They sort of, by the end of the 19th century, have gone out of fashion. And they were, uh, I think, very, very different from what we or the 19th century expect because they're, as far as we can tell from the copies, they're using coin portraits to create the faces, but they're three-quarter length portraits uh, and incredibly vivaciously posed uh, and somehow talking to one another uh, uh, in their original positions around the room. And, you know, in the end, I suppose they just didn't look like what we want emperors to look like. I wondered about that because it seemed to me that there was a certain nobility to each of them. And we don't, in a way, we we don't want our 12 Caesars to be noble, each of them, do we? We want them to be fallible and venal and violent and... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we do. But then, you know, what is very odd is that more artists of different sorts would still give you kind of cutesy images of Caligula, who, you know, if you read Suetonius, was the greatest monster of, of the whole lot of them. Um, so there's a, there's a funny sort of um, awkward negotiation between image and reputation. And most artists find it easiest to capture the bad reputation of the bad uh, in narrative scenes rather than in portraits, you know, for kind of obvious reasons. How do you show a bad man when all you can sh- showing is above the neck? Um, but that's where some of these narratives of, of murder, um, uh, um, snooping, uh, the court, you know, the, the nasty inside story of what it's really like in Augustus's court, you know, oh, horrible. <laughs> Angra was, you know, absolutely <laughs> preoccupied with that. Um, obviously, the, the, the Titians made their way to Madrid through Charles I, and, and Charles I is a sort of pivotal character in this in, to a certain degree because of course there's also the the great um triumph of caesar the, by mantegna that's that's still in the uk you know now what did charles the first see in them was it was it how deliberate was his was his collection of of caesarian images so far as i can make out our glorious monarch didn't actually have much to do with the specific choices. So it was his agents who were doing this. Um, we didn't send them with a shopping list saying, bring those Mantegnas. But it, it is interesting that, that some of the key pieces that they bring focus on Roman emperors. And I, I think one of the most interesting, I mean, uh, now admired, actually, are the, the sequence of, of Mantegnas triumphs of Caesar and I mean it's often I think been treated a bit too uncritically that painting I mean people have done amazing work on it and have shown you know how these scenes of the triumphal procession you know how Mantegna is drawing on um, all kinds of antiquarian knowledge they've been the, the subject of hugely important work but 
But I think that it's only kind of recently, and I'm thinking here partly of the book by recent book by Stephen Campbell, that people have looked at the figure of Caesar at the end of this. You've got this, you know, you've got the booty, you've got the loot, you've got, you know, procession being, you know, Rome quintessentially conjured up. And the final scene is Caesar on his chariot. The face is actually slightly repainted, but on the basis of a quite good copy. And very few people really until in print, maybe lots of people did uh, in other ways, till recently have said, what happens to Caesar next? You know? Well, you know, what's the next bit of the story? Well, it's assassination, isn't it? You know? And so you have this procession and it's, in some ways, cutting a few corners, you know, it's the last major processional ceremonial event of Caesar before the assassination. And canny viewers surely knew that. (laughs) I I, I, I do like the the thought, though um, this is entirely my fantasy, that when Cromwell had most of Charles's stuff flogged off, he kept the Mantegna's triumphs. That's why they're still in Hampton Court. And I kind of like to think that Oliver Cromwell got the point. He (laughs) saw that that actually this was the prequel to the assassination of the monarch. (laughs) Lots of people will tell me that this is mere fantasy, but it's a nice fantasy, isn't it? It is indeed. (laughs) And and you mentioned tapestries. Those Henry VIII tapestries are unbelievably important works in their time. Yes, and Henry VIII, you know, commissions a series of tapestries, which are always I mean, said to be, none of them now in their original form survive, but their their descendants do. And you, you can, uh, Tom Campbell has done a lot of good work on assembling a genealogy of these, so we can see what the series looked like. But I think what's important, and I think this did take a classicist to see rather than an art historian. I think it's what I, I, I kind of, my brownie badge for tapestry is here um, coming out. Um, what what you have in these tapestries is not what they're always said to be, scenes from the life of Julius Caesar. What these scenes show, without any doubt, they are illustrations of Lucan's epic on the civil war between Caesar and Pompey, uh, written under Nero. But it in part reveals the corruption of autocracy and the absolute the ills of civil war. So it's not a, these tapestries are not a series of the life of Caesar. They're a series of almost explicitly anti-autocratic images. You know, I think you've got to be a bit careful because Lucan has been differently uh, interpreted over the centuries. And by the time you get back to the age of Henry VIII, maybe he's more thought of as um, somebody who's criticising the, the evils of civil war, but he's never been thought of as a proponent of autocracy. And so you think, OK, so these were almost, apart from another set of tapestries, the most expensive bits of stuff in Hampton Court. These were phenomenally valuable. And they're a critique in some way of one-man rule in a, in a royal palace guys now how do you start to explain that you know and I think you know one explanation is red faces all round when they arrived from the low countries the, the you know uh, and you know the household unwrapped them and saw what they were and they thought oh my god you know what are we going to tell his majesty about this you know whoops uh, uh, possible but I think unlikely and I think it's much more likely that what you're seeing here as with many of these images of emperors is not just the kind of um oh kind of image of power legitimating my rule and my dynasty there's a bit of that of course they're also quite interesting i think in um in in setting up what must have been dialogues and debates and discussion about power and royal power and one-man rule amongst onlookers, their owners, uh, you know, and the kings themselves. You know, I think I, I did come to the conclusion, much as I, you know, I'm, I'm not a monarchist, but I, I, working on this book did make me see that it's damn difficult being a king, you know? <laughs> and in a sense, one of the things that kings are doing in their decoration, and I think you can go back to the Roman Empire for this, is they're talking about the difficulty and the problems of monarchy 
as much as bolstering their regime. You know, I feel that's in a, in a way where this book has a bit of a message for now, because you know we have recently, particularly in our recent statue wars, we have come to assume, I think, that the public sculpture or sculpture in general is is always celebratory. You know that the, the the people we have represented around us are people we admire. Well, you can't take that line for the Roman emperors. <laughs> you, know, you know, they knew. People who commissioned these works knew what these guys were like. You know, only one of them died in their beds without any allegation of foul play. You know, what you are doing is you are choosing a problematic series of images. And, you know, I think that maybe it might be useful for us sometimes if we realise that images were not always about just those people we liked. That is fascinating, <laughs> and, and indeed, that I mean, that makes me think, and it's a very clear message from the book: is that is that it seems to be that the messages that they can contain that keeps everybody returning to them. It's why those stories are so compelling. That the images of power are endlessly, ultimately fascinating, but also retellable. Yes, and malleable, and you can do it from a different way round. And you know, what do we think of Nero? You know, so you know, you get one of those famous images from the nineteenth century in Waterhouse's Nero lying on his bed, uh, you know, after having had his mother murdered, and you know, he looks for all the world like a, an adolescent, a moody adolescent. You know, we've seen them, and of course, one of the things is about Nero is he was a moody. There are all kinds of ways of recasting and, and refocusing our views of these. And artists have done it with um, immense aplomb for many centuries, and they are still still doing it. <laughs> Mary, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much, Beth. Twelve Caesars, Images of Power from the Ancient World to the Modern is published by Princeton University Press. It's published in the UK on the 28th of September and priced £30 and in the US on the 12th of October, priced $35. And finally, it's time for this episode's Work of the Week. Last weekend, Christo and Jean-Claude's final wrapped building opened in Paris. L'Arc de Triomphe wrapped was first considered as an idea by Christo and Jean-Claude in the early 1960s, when Christo lived and worked close to the monument. And while Jean-Claude died in 2009, Christo was able to reinstigate the project in 2017. Originally, it was intended to be unveiled in April 2020, but a combination of the pandemic and the need to protect nesting kestrels in the arch meant that it had to be postponed. Christo then died in May 2020 before he got the chance to see his vision of six decades realised. But his nephew, Vladimir Yavachev, who's worked on Christo and Jean-Claude's project for more than 30 years, was able to complete the work to his uncle's wishes. I spoke to Vladimir about the work. Vladimir, could you give me a bit of detail about the background to the work? Because I know that Christo first conceived of the idea of wrapping it 60 years ago but it hadn't been one of those projects where he'd been trying to do it for the last 60 years right that is correct he, the f- initial idea for the uh, wrapped arc the triumph was conceived by christo and jean claude in 1961 christo arrived in paris in 58 and he lived in uh, paris between 1958 and 64 and he became Christo in Paris at that time, in the in the late 50s, because before that he was uh, signing all his paintings, mostly paintings up to that point, with the last name Javachev. And then he started making the packages and the other uh, contemporary works, which he started signing Christo. And in the late 50s, early 60s, Christo and Jean-Claude had a lot of uh, proposals for a rap public building, and that being a uh, parliament prison or a monument or a stadium. And the Arc de Triomphe was one of those proposals where they made a photomontage. Actually, the photomontage was done by Shunk and Kender, the photographers that did the famous Eve Klein uh, photomontage of him jumping off the wall. Uh, So they had a lot of ideas at the time uh, about these uh, public buildings and some of them pursued, some of them developed into being the Rapt Reichstag later on. And uh, the Arc de Triomphe just stayed dormant until uh, 2017 when uh, Christo uh, 
walk it up again. Right. And he woke it up through this, basically in connection with the Centre Pompidou, planning for a Centre Pompidou exhibition. And it was proposed to him then that he did something public in Paris, right? Correct. And uh, then the director of the Pompidou, Bernard Bristain, and the president of the Pompidou, Serge Lesvin, were asking if it's possible to do some sort of intervention. And that's when Christo said, the only thing I would really like to do is do do the Arc de Triomphe wrapped. And uh, they took it up the chain of command, sort of speak, uh, to Mr. Bellaval from the Centre of Monument National and in turn to President Macron. They all actually quite liked the idea and gave us the okay, and that's how it basically developed. Before we start talking about the actual work, one of the things I was struck in seeing it last weekend was that it's not just a matter of wrapping the Arc de Triomphe. It's a matter of enormous like efforts to ensure that the public has the maximum viewing opportunity, haven't you? Because you closed the junction that surrounds the Arc de Triomphe, the Place de Charles de Gaulle, is such a busy junction. And it's, you've managed to get it pedestrianised for the length of this project, which it seems to me is an extraordinary commitment to culture. That was probably a more difficult permission to get than the actual, to wrap the Arc de Triomphe. But it was, uh, we convinced them finally because it was a safety issue for the public mostly. Because when there's so many people coming, this was a safety issue. And that's how we uh, managed to convince the prefecture to close Place de Toile. Now let's talk about the technical aspects of the work itself, because it's 25,000 square metres of the fabric and then three kilometres of rope. So tell us about that and what kind of fabric is it? Because it's, it's got this, this shiny metallic power, but it's also got this blue colour. Well, the, the fabric is uh, almost identical to the fabric that uh, Christian Jacques-Claude used for the wrapped Reichstag. And the wrapped Reichstag was uh, quite uh, larger. It was four times the amount of fabric. It was 100,000 square meters of fabric. And uh, it's polypropylene, loosely woven polypropylene, uh, 600 grams per square meter. So it's quite thick. It doesn't look like it from far away, but because of the scale of the building, it looks uh, much silkier than it actually is. And it's recyclable polypropylene. And the three kilometers of rope uh, give the shape of uh, the arc as Crystal would have liked it. And it's actually the most interesting thing about the fabric that it's, and the difference between the fabric on the Arc de Triomphe from the Reichstag is that under the silver coating, it's blue. And it's covered with uh, the, basically the silver coating is pulverized aluminum, which uh, for the... And, all the 25,000 square meters of fabric, uh, the company that does the coating used one kilogram of aluminium, <laughs> which is uh, about as big as your fist. It's not very large amount and it is not chemical process because it's just pure aluminium that uh, gives that very metallic uh, shine. Yeah. And it's the same uh, process that was used for, as I said, to, for the Reichstag, but it was also the same fabric and process that Christian and Jean-Claude wanted to use for Over the River, which was a project that they abandoned. And uh, the only difference with Over the River is that the weight of the fabric was a little bit less. It was uh, not as heavy as the wrapped Reichstag and the Arc de Triomphe fabric. How much did the earlier wrapping of the Pont Neuf contribute to the kind of goodwill of Paris to allow this to happen? Because that was obviously a landmark project for Christo and Jean-Claude. Oh, a lot. It's, I think this uh, permission process, which went relatively uh, painless and easy, uh, it's due to the support of uh, President Macron, of course. But I think it's the, the Parisians had uh, such a good memory of uh, the Pont Neuf that was done in 1985 that made it uh, much easier this time around. Christo was involved right to the end, right? So effectively, every aesthetic and practical decision was made with Christo present and, and, and viewing. So he saw the, the tests that you do, the life-size tests that are so crucial that Christo always said were absolutely crucial to the realisation of the project. Yes, absolutely. He was involved in the selecting the fabric, the ropes, the details of how the corners and the corniches will be done. It was really the smallest detail. The only thing we had to change was that at the very bottom of the Arc de Triomphe, originally there is a bench that people sit on. And uh, the Centre of Monument National was wanting us to extend that bench just to replicate it so people can sit on it. 
And then we did some tests, and uh, Crystal really didn't want it, but it was something that they asked us to have. And we did some tests, and they looked kind of okay, and he accepted to do it in certain way to wrap the bench in fabric, but not with the deep folds. And then when we put the fabric down, uh, and I saw that the bench made the arc look like it was sitting on a plate, not even on a plinth, but like on a plate. It just didn't look planted in the ground. Uh, I talked to the CMN and they were quite understanding and they understood visually that it doesn't fit. So we managed to cut the bench and make the fabric really go to the bottom. And what actually is really beautiful now, if you, uh, I don't know when was the last time you were there, but the more the, the time passes, because people touch the fabric so much, and all the creases uh, and where people touch it, the blue is coming through much more because of the, the aluminum that is pulverized and coated on top of the fabric is not very durable, and uh, which is intentional too. And it almost looks like a, a, it's, it's become much more sculptural. It looks like a bronze sculpture that somebody touches the nose or the or the fingers or the hand or the breasts <laughs> of a bronze sculpture. How you know in the parks you see and then the yeah. places that are much more rubbed off. Yeah. So it's really become much more sculptural, and I I really uh, think Crystal would have enjoyed that very much. I love it. It's uh, it's very nice how the folds have really set out and this blue coming through. It's really beautiful. How lovely. Obviously, you're you're speculating what he would have liked. I mean, you, it must have been strange completing the project without him. Oh, absolutely. That was the biggest challenge for me, is for him not to be here. It was a personal challenge. It was a, a challenge to, uh, to miss his enthusiasm, his uh, excitement, his criticism. And uh, we tried to keep the excitement as much as uh, we can with the workers. And it was actually, it's, uh, it, it still does feel like a Christophe and Jean-Claude project, even without Christophe and Jean-Claude, which is a great compliment. And also, I personally think it really does look like the drawings. So then I think we've done a pretty good job. That's absolutely right. From my point of view, when I saw it, I was struck by just how much it looked like the drawings. And that, I was wondering, to what extent do you, whilst you're completing the work, how much do you have the drawings like present with you? How much do you refer to them as you're doing it? Well, when we were doing the final touches, because the fabric came down on Sunday, September 12th, and it came down in one day. We unrolled the fabric in one day, and then we spent the next four or five days to... Uh, put the ropes, make the ropes tighter, make the connections and all these things. And we have uh, very detailed technical plans that are on the ropes and how everything goes. But at the end, you just you still do look at the drawing just because that is the vision. And then how it if it really if, if it's like if a rope has to go a little bit up or down, it's always better to refer to the drawing because that's the artistic vision and not the technical part. So we looked at them constantly. It was something we did. Now, this is the very last of the wrapped buildings, right? So there were various other projects which were proposed. You mentioned Over the River earlier on. There were various other projects which existed as drawings and other things. But because Christo started this and got so far with it, it was appropriate to complete it, right? Well, it was his wish. It was his wish for us to complete it. It was uh, something that uh, made me promise him that we'll, we'll do it. and also. But this is the last project with the use of fabric. But we also have another project, which is the Master Before Abu Dhabi, which is a permanent uh, sculpture in the desert, which uh, he also wished for us to finish. So we'll push on for that one. We still don't have permission and all these things, but uh, there is definitely a future. And I think I feel very positive about it. And I'm actually sure we will build it. It's just a question whether it takes uh, three, five, ten, or fifteen years. Okay. And patience we have. So it's something that I've learned from Christo and Jean Claude over the years. So um, this is something that uh, only the future will tell. And what about reconstructions? The blueprints exist for these extraordinary projects. Would you consider redoing anything that had been done in the past? Absolutely not. This was something that was very important to Christo and Jean-Claude. They firmly believe that these projects are once in a lifetime and never again. And it's something that they, even while they were still alive, it was offered to them constantly 
and they always refused because it is a once in a lifetime and never again and it would be just a reproduction of something that was specific to a place time and it had this magic about it and uh so there's no need to recreate it again and who was there was there to see it and experience it and for the rest of the people that didn't there are usually films and photographs and records and archives of it so in a way that also that that once in a lifetime and never again creates that rush for people to come and see the project for these 16 days that it exists I mean, you really have no idea how many people have called me in the last five days saying, oh, I wasn't planning to come, but now I look at the pictures and I'm changing my plans and we're coming. And it creates that rush. And uh, it's and that is wonderful. It, and it is part of the work of art. It's part of the life of uh, the work of art. It's part of making this work of art alive. And especially with the use of fabric, which makes it move with the wind and the building is uh, now alive. It's something that makes it very special and uh, and people really enjoy it. And we want to preserve this, uh, in a way, honesty, this kind of uh, pureness of it by not reproducing them again. And that was also Christian Jacot's wishes. Okay, well, Vladimir, thank you so much for talking to me about it. Perfect, thank you. L'Arc de Triomphe Wrapped is on view until the 3rd of October and access to the work is free. You can read more at christojanclaude.net. To hear an interview with Christo from our archive, look for the episode published on the 6th of April 2018. And to hear a discussion on his legacy, it's the episode on the 5th of June 2020. There's also a great picture story on the book club page of our website in which you can see behind the scenes shots of Vladimir and Christo working on L'Arc de Triomphe Wrapped. And that's all for this episode. You can subscribe to the art newspaper on our website. Click on the subscribe link at the top left of the page and you'll find a range of subscriptions. Do subscribe to this podcast and a brush with and please give us a rating or review if you've enjoyed it. We're on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. The Week in Art is produced by Julia Mahalska, Amy Dawson and David Clack. And David is also the editor and sound designer. Thanks also to Henrietta Bentle and Daniela Hathaway and to this week's guests, Jane, Mary and Vladimir. And thank you for listening. See you next week. Bye for now. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime.